Uh, This is Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day is a time that our country has set aside to pay honor, tribute to those who have given their lives uh, through the military for our freedom from the beginning of our country's history. Um, And it's a time that we should do that as well. You know, Veterans Day is when we say thank you to all of our veterans who are alive. I'm one of those. I wasn't asked to give my life, and I know many of you are. And Memorial Day is just, it's just one of those times as a country we just pause and we say thank you to, the, to those who paid a price and to the families who paid a price. And I know that many of you in here have lost someone to um, military action. And so uh, tomorrow, out at the uh, DCC Cemetery, if you're interested, we have about an hour-long uh, program. Uh, I lead the invocation and the benediction, being a veteran, and uh, we have veterans talk. And so if you want to do something that you've never done before, come out to the cemetery, 10 o'clock, 10 a.m., bring a coat, because it is usually cold in the morning. It's traditional that we get a little bit of snow or rain or something. And, uh, but this is where we go out there and, again, say thank you. So what I'd like to do as a church is just take a moment and just be silent and respect the people that have died on, for our benefit, and then we'll pray for them and their families. Father, we are, uh, we are grateful to those who have given their lives, Lord, so that we could be here today and enjoy the freedom that we've experienced our whole lives. We are very grateful to them. Father, we are uh, saddened that they had to give their lives. Uh, we look forward to the day when peace, when true peace really will um, describe your earthly kingdom and there will no longer be any tears. There will no longer be any need for, for fighting and war. And, um, but, Lord, in the meantime, we are grateful. And we're grateful to the families, Lord. Many of them are sitting right here who have paid that price and having said goodbye to someone they loved, a friend, a relative who uh, died on their behalf. And I pray that you would honor them. Thank you for uh, um, giving me the privilege of being born and raised in this country. Having been around the world, I know we have a lot to be thankful for, and I am grateful. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, as Mark said, we're in a study in Mark um, called The Servant King, really wrestling with the question of how could somebody be a king and a slave? We use the word servant in modern English, but it's really the idea of a slave. They didn't really have the concept of servant the way we think of it in the first century. So you're the slave or a free man, really. And um, so how could you be a king and a slave at the same time? You can't be both. No one's ever both. You can be the king or you can be a slave, but you're not going to be both. And yet Jesus did that. That's what happened. And today I want to talk to you about how Jesus revealed his own character in the midst of the first century. What did he do to show you who he was? What did he do not only to describe who he was so we knew who to worship and follow, but just as importantly, by revealing himself, he shows us who we are. 
And, you know, we do lots of things that the world does, but what makes a difference? Why do we take an offering? Why do we do that? I mean, we're one, of the, we're one of the most generous countries in the world. This is something our country does. We love to give. We love to help out when people are in trouble. We come running, don't we? So what makes a Christian offering different than what the world does? It's got to be something. And so the way Jesus reveals himself in the middle of this gospel tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about him. When you came to faith, how did your view of Jesus change? For some of you, I realize that's, uh, that's a long ways in the past. I get that. Think back about what happened when you came to faith. How did your view of Jesus change? Or another way to ask the same question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? All right, we have managed to simplify the gospel down to sound bites. And um, I know that's important. I get that. But we miss a lot of information when we reduce it to something so simplistic. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? What difference does it make how you live your life? Does it really make a difference? If you look at the statistics of the church compared to culture at large, you would be convinced, absolutely, that most of us don't think it makes a difference. Because we are fundamentally no different than the world at large. Our divorce rate is the same. Our abuse rate is the same. Our addiction rate is the same as the world. Why is that? Why is that? We should be fundamentally different. If we are to be a magnet to draw people to the one true living God, then what they see when they look at us, they should see something different. Do you realize that when you became a Christian, you became much, uh, part of a much larger story? It's no longer your life. Uh, one of the things that goes against us as Americans, we have the right to privacy. We have the right to freedom of speech. No, you don't. Those are not biblical rights. Confidentiality is not a biblical principle. It's a legal principle. You don't have the right to confidentiality. Look in the Bible. God is in the business of exposing sin to everybody around you. How would you like to be David? What's David known for? Bathsheba. Right? How would you like to be that guy? For all of eternity to know about your sin. You became part of something far bigger when you became a Christian, and it actually does not include the right to freedom of speech and the right to privacy. Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. No, you don't have the right to free speech. Only what should come out is what brings encouragement to those around you. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. We could, draw, we could make a list that goes on and on and on. You became part of something bigger when you became a Christian, something that's vital, something that is absolutely essential for God to fulfill his mission in this broken world to redeem it. You become something very, very critical and important. Do you realize that what we do here on Sunday morning is a picture of God's story? This is a picture right here of what we do. The people of God, we are the picture for the world. How else are they going to find God? There is no other way. Only by looking at us.
DCC should be a reflection of God's story. And that includes, yes, his love, his deep, passionate love for everyone, those who are less fortunate than us. But it also includes a commitment to holiness. It involves that. That's why we take holiness so seriously. Because we are a reflection to the world. How else are they going to see God if they can't see him in us? They can't see Christ by looking at trees. Can't. It's by looking at us. So how do we live both as children of the king and as slaves at the same time? How we do that is we'll determine what we reflect to the world around us. So we're going to look at a constellation of stories today in Mark where Jesus reveals himself. And this is actually, I think, the heart of Mark. The servant king, a man that could be a king and a slave at the same time. Why? Why is it important? Because you're asked to do the same thing, by the way. This isn't unique to Jesus. This describes your life. So let's jump into it. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. We're going to jump right into a story, but it's a turning point in the gospel. Jesus, Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? That's a question every one of you should answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you ashamed when people find out you're a Christian? Are you ashamed to say that? Don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed to tell people about Jesus. They don't know who he is. Their image of who he is is built on stereotypes. You've heard me say over and over again, I love when I'm out in the county and somebody asks me what I do and I say, I'm a pastor. I just love that that question because I always get the eye roll. It's as consistent as taxes. And you know what I mean. I'm a pastor. The least respected occupation in our country. If I dug ditches, they would have more respect. And I love it. Because all I got to do is say, I saw that. And I do that a lot. I saw that. Saw what? I saw you roll your eyes. Why'd you roll your eyes? And you'd be astounded the answers. Don't ever be ashamed to tell people you're a Christian. Don't. They've built this whole thinking on the media and stereotypes. They don't really understand what Christianity is about. Therefore, they have a hard time making a good decision about it. Don't ever be ashamed of that. Why is this important? So he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. They're finally starting to make sense. We're in chapter 8, halfway through Mark. We've backed up just a little bit. This is the halfway point, and they finally are able to say, you're the Messiah. Now, this is at the end of his ministry. It took him three years to get to this point. So don't be alarmed if your friends take their time, 
okay? They're hanging out with Jesus. And it still took them three years to say that. Just a couple chapters earlier, they didn't understand the bread and the loaves and the fishes and all the miracles that were going on. They didn't get that. They didn't understand what that was about. It took them three years to get to the point to say, you were the, you were the Messiah. So Jesus warned them not to tell anyone else about him. Isn't that strange? In our world, it's just the opposite. We want to tell everybody about Jesus, but he told them not a word. Why in the world would he do that? Well, Mark had just given us the story. We learn a lot about what Mark is thinking by how he organizes his material. He just gave us a story in the paragraph before about Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida. So they brought a blind man to him. He put spit on his eyes. Do you see anything? He said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Verse 24. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. So Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Don't say a word. So he just gives us the story of the blind man who received the sight, which is, which is right before them acknowledging you were the Messiah. Guess what? It's the same story. The disciples are finally beginning to realize who Jesus is. They're starting to receive their sight. At the beginning of the story, they call him rabbi, teacher, but they don't have a clue who's standing in their midst. Not really. Three years later, after all these miracles, they're beginning to put two and two together, and they're still not quite sure what that means, but they realize someone significant is standing in their midst. Little did they know, right after this, he dies, he gets executed. So he's reached a point in the story where it's absolutely critical that the word about who he is doesn't leak out. You see, the coming kingdom and the coming Messiah, that's a dangerous message in this culture. This is, that's called sedition. That's a dangerous message. Many have died before Jesus proclaiming this very thing. Other messiahs had come. <clears throat> you don't want to say, I'm a messiah in, under the Roman Empire. You're in trouble. So he's at this turning point where Jesus, this is the turning point in the story, where Jesus is now has to act swiftly and he has to act secretly to fulfill the mission because he doesn't want them to, he doesn't want to die prematurely. Probably don't want to die at all, but he doesn't want to die prematurely. And so this is a dangerous thing to say. So the disciples, finally you're starting to get the story of the loaves and the fishes which had occurred earlier. Their eyes are now open, just like the miracle of the blind man, but they don't know what this means. And honestly, I think that's where many of our Christians today find themselves. They understand to some degree who Jesus is, but they don't really know what it means. So if you ask uh, this average Christian, why is it important to live out your life in faith? They're not really sure. One of the questions, a series of questions I get from our young people all the time is, I know the Bible says that... Uh, uh, adultery or divorce or whatever, you name it, you fill in the blank, is wrong. I just don't understand why. I don't know if I agree with it. Why? And for many of you that are older, it wasn't important for you to answer that question. That's the way we were raised in our culture, much more duty-bound. We do it because we're supposed to do it. But our young people aren't there. I need to understand why. What's wrong with friends with benefits? I'm surrounded by friends doing this. What's actually wrong? They don't seem any different than I do. We can't use the argument because 
We're holy because we're no different than the rest of the world. Our statistics are the same. We have a flaw in our thinking. And we need to be able to answer the question, why is it important to live out your faith? And we haven't done that. So, at this stage, it would be politically dangerous to claim that Jesus was the true king of Israel. That's actually what got him put on the cross pretty quick when it came out. Jesus has been announcing the kingdom. Now, as a human, all, all human rule, this is part of what he's been saying, all human rule has a mixture of justice and oppression, mercy and corruption. We all see that, don't we? We live with it day to day. We watch what happens around us in our culture. And we may not be as corrupt as other nations, but we still have corruption, don't we? We see it. We arguably have the best justice system in the world, and it still fails us, doesn't it? We're aware of that. And so what Jesus is beginning to highlight, he's just at the beginning of this, is all of that is going to fade in the presence of the true kingdom. The true, the true kingdom. All the miracles, all the extraordinary feedings, the healings, everything coming up to this point is pushing us in the, the direction that all of these are signs that the true God has broken into our world and has brought his kingdom with us. That's what it tells us. The true God is now here. The Jews expected a Messiah that would rebuild the temple, defeat the enemy, bring God's justice, something very physical. Jesus was already beginning to redefine these things at this point in his ministry. He hadn't gathered a military, had he? There's no army surrounding him. He hadn't toppled the ruling elite yet. There was no new earthly kingdom. Something very different is happening. Something very, very different, and that's what makes us different. Not better. Hear me correctly. We are not better. We are different. He introduced a strange new agenda because God's healing power through Christ was beginning to sweep through the land. The crowds are starting to come. All they're seeing are the miracles. They're not yet able to see what's behind the miracles, which is a very loud statement that there's a new kingdom here. An entirely new state of affairs has come to our earth. God has shown up. And he brought his kingdom with him. It's a new way of understanding what it means to be the Messiah, but it's also a new way of understanding what it means for you to be the people of God and how to live out your lives. Do you think he would have had the lasting impact he did if he had fulfilled their desires and established a militarily strong kingdom? Kings come and go. They come and go. Nations come and go. But the Messiah, Jesus, is here to stay. And all of the world, at some level, has some knowledge of who he is. Then Jesus goes on from there and he predicts his death. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Key word there, Son of Man, we'll come back to that. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned and looked at the disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, or deceiver. Get behind me. You're deceiving. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
he now begins to teach his disciples this new way um, would involve the certain death of the Messiah. There's, I don't think there's any way to overstate how traumatic this is to hear these words. This is going to involve the death of the Messiah. This is startling. It's like a quarterback. It's like the Broncos going to the Super Bowl. And Peyton Manning, after the first kickoff, he says, we're going to give up 10 touchdowns before we do anything. What? We can't win that way. We're going to give up 10 touchdowns before we decide to play the game. That's what we're going to do. And what's even more startling is that he's inviting them and us into that strategy. The Messiah has to die. A Messiah who dies would be shown to be a false Messiah. That's what their thinking is. And he's saying, no, this is the truth to the kingdom right here. I know you don't understand it, but this is the reality. We're going to give up 10 touchdowns before we start. So Jesus, what he does is he connects his ministry to Daniel 7. Daniel's the one place where we see the language of the Son of Man. So I'm just going to read to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, in the first eight verses, he talks about four kingdoms. There's four kingdoms that are going to arise. I know we've done a lot of work on trying to figure out, does this tell us about the future and prophecy and timelines and all that? Lay all that aside for now. Look at the heart of the message here. There are four kingdoms that are going to arise, and then God is going to set up a courtroom to rule over the mess that's been created. In Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, As I looked, thrones, now he's in the middle of a vision, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was like white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. By the way, this imagery is used in more than one place in the prophets. God said, I'm going to call an assembly and I'm going to make a decision based on the mess you've created. And so he convenes the court. So, in the middle of this, the Son of Man appears. Listen to verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. This is where that language comes from, right here. This is the background to Jesus' statements. This Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, here it is. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations. Hear that? Not most nations. Not the Western nations. Not the free nations. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. Daniel goes on to explain it. The interpretation is that God would establish his kingdom. So what happens when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man and says the kingdom is here? We are seeing the fulfillment of this passage right here. He has absolute authority. Don't ever be embarrassed to call yourself a Christian. Remember, the people you're talking to, they don't know who he is. 
They've built their vision, their image of him, based on stereotypes. Peter didn't get it. That should make you feel good. Peter doesn't even get it. It's, the story is so unbelievable and astounding. The Messiah is going to die? That's how authority is going to be brought to the earth? Yeah. Uh, Peter doesn't get it. He couldn't see God's perspective. He begins to rebuke Jesus. I love it. I just love his boldness. Let's rebuke the Messiah. Let's rebuke God. <laughs> it was madness. And this is the point at which God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Think about the prayer we prayed at the beginning, the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is already happening in heaven. Daniel gives us a picture from God's throne room, and the Gospel of Mark gives us a picture of this actually beginning to happen on the earth. The kingdom has come. It's madness. And this kingdom will challenge and overturn all human assumptions about power and glory. It will defeat evil. And every story from this point on in the book reinforces this message. We're just going to do a quick summary. The very next one, the way of the cross. Verse chapter 8, verse 34. When he came to the crowd, he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. Be willing to be executed, folks. That's the message. Be willing to be crucified. This is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus and overturning evil through love and faithfulness, not through military might. That's what he did. He changed the world. And that's what he's called us to do. The very next one, the transfiguration. You know the story, the transfiguration. Elijah and, and Moses appear, right? They're going to build these uh, temples for them and all that. It's a bizarre story. Reality is shifted beyond what we would consider to be ordinary. And sometimes it's hard for us to make sense of it. But you know what we get? We get a glimpse of the inside of the kingdom. Just like we did in Daniel 7. The world can't see this. But as Christians, we can. Elijah has come. So Mark chapter 1 verse 2 said, we talked about that in the beginning. And Elijah is here. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. So what does Jesus say at the end? I tell you, Elijah has come, verse 13 of chapter 9. They had done to him everything that they wished, just as it is written about it. The verse before, why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? The only thing left to do to fulfill the Lord's Prayer is the execution of the Messiah. And that's about to happen right after these stories. Then Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. Chapter 9, verse 14. What's amazing about this story is that the disciples couldn't do it. They didn't have the faith to do it. A lot of ink has been written, spilled over this story, trying to make sense of what in the world is he talking about? Well, earlier the, the disciples had been able to cast out demons, and all of a sudden they're stumped. Their faith doesn't carry through. We often think, and I think here's the message of the story, we often think that the early part of the believer's life is the most exciting and the most challenging. This story proves us the opposite. Not so. Mark wants us to see that as we move toward maturity, the challenge gets more real and more difficult. And for those of you that have been Christians for a long time, it gets harder and harder to stay the course. It's so easy to slip. It's so easy. And the cost is so much greater. To whom much is given, much is expected. 
And Mark is communicating to us with this story that as you live the life of faith, it is going to get harder. It really is. By the way, that's why being an elder is an especially challenging task. I personally don't care how successful you are in the business world to be an elder. I care about how your faith has been tested because I know I've tasted it. To become an elder means you're going, you're going full bore against Satan. And you're going to be making tough decisions that influence people's. Peter describes it as God casts lots, and this is the church that he cast your lot in as an elder with all the bumbling idiots that are sitting out there and all the knuckleheads, to use Mark's language, and the people that decide to sin. This is who we have, and this is who we have to love. That's why I will always push the most important thing for me for an elder is that they have had their faith tested. Then he goes on and predicts his death a second time. While he's talking to them about his death, they're quietly over here talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know why I shake my head. That's us. They're talking about who's the greatest, and he's talking about he's going to die. You want to follow Jesus? Give up your status. So in the language before, take up your cross. Be willing to be crucified. Here, give up your status. You want to be great? Then you have to be a slave. You got to give it up. That's the cost. Then you have this interesting passage where they, they decide to uh, uh, stop these people who are casting out demons because they're not part of us. Whoever's not against us is for us. You know what? There's a war on. And these disciples, just like good humans, are starting to choose sides. They're not like us, so we're telling them not to do that. And Jesus said, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. If they proclaim my name, who cares? So how do you choose sides? What do you argue over? Do you argue over the type of music that we play? Does that offend you? Does it offend you the way we do our worship service? Does it offend you that we do communion every day? That's what the disciples are doing. They're picking sides. This is what's important to me. This is my tradition. And in a church that's a community church, guess what? We got lots of traditions, don't we? Which I love it. Is that how you choose sides? Jesus is the one true God who broke into our world and changed everything in a surprising way by giving up the status, giving up the fights, giving up everything for us. And he becomes the picture. So when Jesus emerges, when he presents himself, he has given up everything. And he says, you want to be my disciple? That's what I expect from you. I've asked the question, why does God bless a nation? Why? There's only one reason. So that the rest of the world will see the one true God and come running. That's why. Why does God bless you? so that your neighbors will see evidence of this one true God and come running. That's why. Don't be deceived. You didn't earn it. You deserve it? No, you don't. You've earned it? No, you didn't. Why did God bless you? Because he wants to use you to reflect his glory to the people around you who don't know him. 
How else are they going to find it? How else are they going to find it? I'm going to close by looking at this one passage in 1 Peter. Remember we've talked about how uh, Peter, uh, Mark is, is uh, Peter's memoirs, if you will, and he wrote it down, Mark did. So we should expect to find these things repeated. Therefore, with minds that are alert, this is 1 Peter 1.13, minds that are alert and fully sober, that's he's talking to you, wake up, in other words, come out of your stupor, don't be deceived by all the commercials and the media blitz, everything you see, ignore all that. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Look for the future hope, not for the present hope. That's what he's saying. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That's what makes us different. We are not better. We are awake. That's what makes us different. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Your life matters. By the way, we didn't even get to the passage on divorce. Moses only permitted divorce because of your hard heart. That's the only reason. You're called to live out your faith. You're called to give up status, happiness, whatever you have. You're called to give it up to follow the Lord. These are called the hard sayings of Jesus. And you're called to give up pleasure if you have to. That's why Paul says, imitate Christ in everything you do. Put others as more important than yourselves, including your spouses who are unfaithful. Don't be deceived. Divorce is a statement about your hardness of heart. The Bible's clear on that. Do we show grace when it happens? Absolutely we do. But we will always be a church that stands firm on the health of marriages, relationships. Always. Always. This is what it means to be a Christian. So when Jesus emerges, when he reveals himself, he reveals what you should be like. What we should be like as a church. So yeah, our divorce rate should be zero. If we're true followers of Jesus, it should be zero. That doesn't mean sin doesn't happen. It just means it should be zero. It shouldn't be 50%. And you fill in the blank on whatever it is. I just used that one example because that's in the passage. That's what it means. So when Jesus emerges, when he reveals himself to the world, this true kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that's what it means when you pray that prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening in heaven, and Jesus is showing you what it looks like to happen on earth. That describes our life. Describes our church. Father, thank you for uh, being a God that we can turn to. Lord, I know these are hard sayings. I get it. I know these are hard teachings. And yet, Lord, they, they are so important because they reflect on what we really believe about you. And Father, until we as a church, and I'm not talking about DCC, I'm talking about our nation, until we as a church grasp the idea that our lives matter, 
Our grumbling is highly destructive. Our cheating on our spouses, our being greedy, our divorcing, our suing one another, all the things that are talked about. Lord, until we grasp that, that these are all very highly destructive practices for your kingdom, then it's going to be a challenge for us to live out our faith. Help us as a church, Lord, right here, our own church. Help us to be committed, Lord, to holiness, to be committed to the faith that you've called us to. Help us to model for the world what it means to be a slave and a child of the king at the same time and to love, to love the people around us. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. I asked a question early on. An offering is one of those places. What distinguishes us from the rest of the world? The rest of the world loves to give. Our country is known for that. Don't just put money in the offering plate. Don't do that. Stop and say, Lord, thank you that I have this privilege to do it. Because you know what? What you put in there is a reflection of your belief in the gospel. Thank you for being generous. You're the ones that make it possible for us to do this. We couldn't do any of this without you. Thank you.